from UNH Cooperative Extension. This is Overinformed on IPM. So I was talking to my buddy, Kelly, the other day. This is Kelly Hamby. I'm an extension specialist and assistant professor at the University of Maryland. What I had called to talk to her about was flies. Flies and yeast, actually. You know, girl talk. Because Dr. Hamby happens to be the top expert in insect-yeast interactions. But the topic of seed treatments happened to come up, and I've always found this topic to be an interesting one from an IPM perspective, and certainly more pertinent earlier in the season. You will hear more from Kelly later about her area of expertise, the flies and the yeasts, but I did want to drop in on her work with seed treatments. By seed treatments, I am referring to those fungicides and insecticides in a coating around crop seed or perhaps, I guess, uh, a treatment you would apply to seeds or seed pieces before planting. These treatments are meant to protect the seed and the newly emerging plant from diseases and from feeding pest insects. Fungicides are typically targeting soil-borne fungal pathogens. Insecticides are typically water-soluble neonicotinoid insecticides that are taken up by the roots of the plant and translocated through the shoots, leading to protection of the whole plant from any insect that comes along and takes a chomp. Within the IPM philosophy, seed treatments are kind of a sticky wicket. A major tenet of IPM is that you use pesticides only when necessary, usually based on something you observe in the crop, like number of bugs or percent infested plants or whatever is appropriate for that system. Cultural, physical, and biological controls are encouraged as preventative measures that avoid threshold populations and perhaps avoid the use of chemical pesticides. But what about preventative chemical controls? When are these justified? Listen back to my episode, What is IPM? if you're into these philosophical questions. But I'm remembering back to my conversation with Doug Pfeiffer, who will argue that preventative chemical treatments are justified with a history of injury. So if you know you had a pest problem last year and you know enough about that pest's biology to know it overwintered in that crop space, and you also know that early is the best time to strike, preventative applications are really justified. For example, preventative applications of fungicide are the name of the game for controlling fungal diseases and fruit crops. Preventative insecticide treatments are really effective at controlling insect pests of young field crops and vegetable crops which is especially important when the plants are young and susceptible to injury with just a little bit of insect feeding damage. Usually once plants mature, they are more tolerant of feeding damage. So this seed treatment approach has eliminated the need for foliar applications of pesticides in a lot of scenarios. Actually, this approach has eliminated a lot of foliar applications for a whole bunch of scenarios. And through that, they eliminated the disruption to natural enemy complexes that sprays cause. They've eliminated the labor expense of spraying those insecticides. They've eliminated the need for all that fuel to drive the tractor to spray the insecticides. Seed treatments have been doing some heavy lifting to improve sustainability in crop yield and quality. They are great 
and they should always be used in every crop always. End of podcast. Just kidding. Never say always in IPM. Never say never either. Well, I asked Kelly about what we're controlling and how long we're talking when it comes to the residual efficacy of some of these seed treatments. It varies by crop. Seed treatments are only active in the plant tissue at a level where they actually control pests, probably you could say for about a month. The early season pests that could be controlled, and some of them are actually only partially controlled, are things like seed corn maggot, cutworm, white grubs, and wireworms. The low ground pests are the major thing where I think it's actually justified for them. You also have a little bit of a bow ground protection against flea beetles, armyworms, other caterpillar pests. Now, Kelly had set herself and her students on a project to understand the economic value in using seed treatments in field corn and wheat. Field crops are a whole lot different from vegetable crops, not just in terms of the varieties you grow and when and how you harvest them, but tolerable levels of damage are really different. So the IPM is really different. For example, sweet corn is a pretty high input crop. You wanna protect those ears from moths that lay their eggs on corn ears so their babies don't crawl inside and and gross out you and, and your customers. So you would go to great lengths to protect those ears. We'll cover all of this in a later episode. But because most field corn is cow food and cows don't really care if there's caterpillars in their food, at least they haven't found a way to complain about it yet, field corn growers will tolerate a lot higher incidence of caterpillar pests in their ears, while sweet corn growers' tolerance is right down there near zero. Field corn is a super low input crop. You really just need to protect young corn plants until they've grown past the whirl stage, and then it's all about the yield, which are barely affected by a few chomps from insects here and there. So you can see how important the early season seed treatments would be for field corn growers. I had Kelly get me up to speed on her project. Well, so what we were trying to do, and what, this is the work that we just got published, is we were trying to evaluate what the non, whether there was an economic benefit to using the seed treatments and what the non-target impacts were. So we did some intensive sampling of the arthropod communities, and we separated out the fungicide um, so all of the seed, all of the neonics are applied with a fungicide. So we had one that was fungicide only, one that was totally bare seed, and then two fungicide combined with neonic products. Um, and then we compared those in terms of yield, plant stand, economic parameters, pest damage. We didn't see any economic benefits from having seed treatments in any crop. And we also did see non-target impacts just from the fungicide. Oh, and what, what were those non-target impacts you were seeing from fungicide treatments? Well, just this is the thing. I mean, that's weird with insect community stuff. Is we would sometimes see increases in certain groups, and sometimes we would see decreases in certain groups. Like we would see, for some reason, we saw more spiders, and we don't know if there was like intoxicated prey items, and so they were doing pretty well, um, or if they were intoxicated, so they're just easy to capture. Where we saw our biggest impacts was actually in wheat. And we saw like long-term reductions in aphalinidoise, which would, could be important biocontrol agents in that system since aphids are one of the key vectors of barley yellow dwarf virus. I'll just jump in here to allow you a moment to enjoy imagining intoxicated spiders. Also to explain that aphalinid wasps are a parasitoid 
wasp of aphids. And maybe that's obvious from the name. Parasitoids are a special kind of predator that lays its eggs inside her host. Parasites that kill their hosts are called parasitoids. That's where the terminology comes from. So aphylidid wasps, parasitoids of aphids. And this group did get its name as the first described species was a parasitoid of an aphid species. But there are a whole bunch of species of aphylinids that parasitize other hemipterans, that is other bugs, and even some other groups, including other hymenopterans other wasps. These are called hyperparasitoids. So parasitoid wasps that lay their eggs inside other parasitoid wasps. So you can see where these webs of predator-prey interactions get pretty complicated. So yes, the seed treatments protect young plants through the early season. And this protection can provide improved yields. That is, if that's when the greatest pest pressure occurs. If sporadic pests show up later in the season or because a pest population isn't controlled because, I don't know, the spiders are all hopped up or the parasitoid wasps are suffering because there wasn't enough aphids to keep their numbers going early in the season or a hyperparasitoid shows up and that hurts the parasitoids, which helps the aphids. So it's kind of different from situation to situation, which makes finding clear scientific evidence in favor of one factor or another being the driving force it's just hard to do. So should growers stop using seed treatments? I asked Kelly what she makes of this. What kind of strategies should growers employ? It's gotten so complicated to sort out what different pest management strategies there are. I actually had was because I was trying to determine what was most commonly used so that we could make our make sure that the field experiments we were doing were relevant. I had to get people to send me pictures of the labels on the seed bag. And then you needed like the front side and the back side to use the codes. And you have to like decode it with these little codes to figure out what's actually on the seed. And it takes me and I know what the options are, 10 minutes to figure out what they have. So, so if that's it's that complicated, I feel like it's pretty hard. And I even ask people who are extension agents that, that also grow, grow field crops. And I'm like, so how do you pick? And they're like, well, I haven't had an issue, so I don't think about it. Um, and so, so they don't know. Kelly made another really important point during our conversation. Most crop insurance policies covering catastrophic losses will require that growers follow industry standard for crop protection and seed treatments have become a critical part of what is considered industry standard for field crops. I can definitely understand why. They are very effective at doing what they were designed to do, which is protect young plants when they need it most. They save farmers a heck of a lot of time, and they've also helped us to eliminate lots and lots of chemicals from being sprayed out into environments. But putting that pesticide out there every year, every field, regardless of the history of infestation, this doesn't really sit right with me as someone who believes that pesticides should only be applied when necessary. That's not really IPM, but it really does drive home the point that the choice of when and where to use pesticide is not a simple one. Before I wrap up, I want to thank Kelly Hamby of the University of Maryland and give a big thanks to Jason Lightbound, who wrote and performed our theme music, but I will leave the last word on what to make of this to Kelly. It's one of those things where I think, well, and I I guess I'm just like destined to work on unsolvable problems for all my career.
Overinformed on IPM is a production of University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension, an equal opportunity educator and employer. All music is used by permission or by Creative Commons licensing. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the university, its trustees, or its volunteers. Inclusion or exclusion of commercial enterprises in this podcast does not equate endorsement. The University of New Hampshire, New Hampshire counties, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. Learn more at extension.unh.eu.